Hello and welcome to the Rating Room Podcast. It's Jay and Andy again. Today we're recording another special episode. We've got a guest with us today. Please welcome our guest for today, Stuart. So Stuart, thanks for being on the show. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, good evening. I'm Stuart. I'm in my early 40s. I live in Lincolnshire. I have all the charm and wit of Roger Moore, but look worse than Daniel Craig. And my favourite drink is Mojito, which is actually inspired from when I saw Die Another Day, and I thought that looked quite good, so I went and bought one. Brilliant. Um, thank you for coming on, Stuart, and dedicating some time you know, to talk to me and Andy. So, continue with the theme of James Bond, let's get into it. So, Stuart, can you tell us, what is your earliest Bond memory? Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one. This is, I grew up very much with the Roger Moore films, um, I used to see them on telly, but the biggest memory that stood out to me is actually Chris Tarrant flogging Kentucky Fried Chicken on a video um, advert. So, I think it was been about 9 or 10, and my parents had got a copy of um, License to Kill. I still can't remember how much of the film I actually saw because it's a 15, I think um, yeah, there's, there's quite a graphic bit in it so I can't remember if I saw that or not um, but what I does stick out for me is yeah, you got Chris Tarrant set, flogging Kentucky Fried Chicken with a prize of Bond experience for the day so Chris Tarrant with his lovely Pat Sharp Funhouse style hair that he had selling it. Actually looked a bit more suave than Bond he had his night, he was some flogging a t-shirt I think you, you could win as another prize as well. They never actually showed what it looked like as Bond for a day. I don't know if it was like... You can imagine if it was like Roger Moore's or Pierce Brosnan's Bond themed. It'd be quite um, light-hearted and tongue-in-cheek. I don't know if it's like Dalton's on a path for revenge. It's going to be um, quite hardcore or something. Whether you just go into Columbia and chase down some sort of drug lords or something. I don't know. Um, maybe that's why they never advertised. Because the person didn't survive who won it. But um, there you go. That That's my um, first memory, really, of um, Bond that really sticks out. I actually looked at YouTube after you you let us know about Chris Tarrant's KFC advert because I've not I don't recall seeing this one, Andy. So I don't know if you you did because um, as I mentioned on my podcast, my memory isn't the greatest. But everything you've just said, then Stuart, I, it definitely hits home in terms of his haircut and the the cheesy video, and it was like a helicopter experience, wasn't it? There was there's various elements that Chris Tarrant picked out on the the promo. Yeah, I don't remember it at all. I think my, my first time watching it would have probably been when it was on TV some years later, so uh, I don't think I've actually watched it on video. So that's that's quite a nice little intro. I must uh, give a disclaimer at this point that other chicken places are available. Um, you know, we're not sponsored by KFC. That's my uh, my copyright bit done for the, for the episode. So, Stuart, let's talk about your favourite Bond film. Yeah, so my favourite Bond film, I don't think it's the best one, as you see when we get to rankings, but it is the one I think is the, the most fun. And it does actually have a very good um, plot, which we'll go through in a second, is Octopussy. One of my loves as well is Fabergé eggs. Unfortunately, no one ever buys me one. Um, I don't know why. It might be a little bit pricey for people, but it's actually quite a couple of Bond links here. Is I went to New Orleans. I actually went to the last Mardi Gras for a hook, a Katrina hit. Don't worry, we won't mention that, because that'll um, probably push this well over the sort of 18 rating. But um, the reason I went there was because of my love of Live and Let Die. So... Um, I saw the old fillet of soul restaurant stuff like that which apparently don't exist it's quite disappointing when you get there but um i remember seeing all the um wartime structure and stuff like that and thought oh that'd be you know a fascinating place to go to and when my plane landed there was a fabergé egg um, exhibition at the um uh, i think it's a museum um natural art or whatever it is there um yeah i, I remember seeing that it, it wasn't the one from the film unfortunately but um it was yeah my lover bond that took me there and actually got to see two things connected to the films at the same time but what i love about octopussy is um yeah i think it's a lot of fun you've got a villain in Kamal Khan who manages to out-camp Roger Moore at times, which I think is quite an achievement. I think, yeah, he, he, he's, he's cracking. He's Louis Jordan does a very, very good job. But what's, if you scratch the surface, what's actually under, under the skin of the film is quite a, a dark and serious sort of plot. You've got um, Louis Jordan's character, who is quite happy to sell out his partner, basically let, let her get nuked to make um, some money. But what you've also got is a Russian general who's basically trying to start um, or reignite the Cold War by causing an accident that caused nuclear disarmament. You can imagine that someone probably would have thought of that at some point, something like that. Can we detonate a bomb somewhere and make it look like a foreign power's done it by mistake? So I think it's actually quite a dark film. And I, I was saying to someone the other day, if you cut out two minutes of like the Tarzan swinging, you know, I, I do think you have to have the bit where Roger Moore manages to get a tiger to sit. I think, you know, that, that has to be in there, you know. it's um, But yeah, I think you cut out a couple of the silly bits and actually I would get rid of the opening scene with the plane when he's at the um, South American base and actually swap that with a bit where they kill the, um, I think it's 009 at the start with the egg. 
I mean, it does get a bit weird if he dies, the egg falls out, and then you hear the little happy tune. Other than that, I think actually a couple of tweaks would make the Bond film even better, in my opinion. So, Stuart, would you keep in the scene where Bond is dressed as a clown? Yes. I don't understand why that gets such criticism from fans, because it ties back to the start with 009's killed in the clown outfit. I think that's the whole point of it. It's to, um, one, it gives him a disguise to get in there. It's quite funny. Roger Moore's, I think, one of the last sort of Bonds who are constantly going on actually under deep undercover missions. I mean, Timothy Dalton's does it, um, obviously, Licensed to Kill for Revenge. But um, in general, I think Roger Moore is actually doing a lot more spying than some of the others do. And, um, yeah, I, I thought, yeah, I understood the same absurdity of it because he gets changed about five seconds. You know, and you've got a bomb that's going to detonate in about three minutes. But I think it does just tie back to, um, yeah, the, the way um, 009 was killed at the start of the film. That's, uh, that's good recall. Of, of the film and it kind of brings back to our our main part about octopussy some of the scenes and you've probably gone into greater detail than we have so so thanks for that Stuart you know in terms of octopussy obviously you know you alluded to General Olov there in terms of the the Russian general what did you think of the villains in octopussy you obviously mentioned Prince Kamal yeah I think uh, Stephen Burkov not a very friendly guy if you meet him in real life actually um the first convention I ever went to he was doing a signing I, I took a look at his desk. He was just he just signed it and didn't even look up at people. So I thought I'm not going to go and do that. But um, uh, I think in general he's at his acting is brilliant. He's um yeah he he's he's very good. You know he just plays that sort of manipulative general. He's someone who isn't able to let go of the Cold War effectively. That that's the sort of person he is. He he wants you know to fight the West. He thinks you know if you get unilateral disarmament. That'll give him a chance to, you know, roll the tanks over, whatever it is. So I think he's quite good. Um, Gabinda is a good um, sort of henchman as well. He's he's not over the top. And I think he's quite, you know, you've got a guy who's a bit serious, a bit stoic, which again balances out Louis Jordan's, um, you know, campness. It's, um, it's, it's a good match, I think. Louis Jordan doesn't have to have the physicality then. There's very little physicality from Louis Jordan. He doesn't need to have it. I think it's a mistake Quantum of Solace makes. It's the final scene between um, Green and um, Bond, where suddenly he's like, you know, having a toe-to-toe fight with him. It's ridiculous. What Octopussy does well is it scripts in the henchmen to do that. So you get very little there between other than the last bit on the plane with um, Kamal Khan and um, Bond. And I think obviously Octopussy is a mild sort of villain as well. She sort of gets turned as the film goes on. But she is a sort of mild villain as well. She doesn't know about the nuclear stuff, but she's happy, you know, to make all the money off smuggling. Yeah, that's that's really insightful. And just before we move on, what about the Bond girls and Octopussy? How do you think they compare to other Bond girls in the series? I think um, Magda is um, good. She's actually, I, I said this, is one of the creepiest um, lines unintentionally of any Bond film, where she goes, I collect memories, which means she collects some scrapbooks. So it actually sounds like, makes her sound like some sort of serial killer. Um, rather than actually, um, yeah, she's got a nice little scrapbook at home. It makes it sound like she's got a couple of bodies under the basement, to be perfectly honest. Um, but she's quite she's quite good. I think, as well, though, obviously the star is Maud Adams. You know, she she does, um, yeah, she does a, a, a cracking job. I think it's um, quite ironic, because I don't think her, their ages are that near, but um, she's seen as being um, probably nearest in age to Roger Moore out of all the Bond girls. So I think, yeah, she does a good sort of... Um, He's the, he's the nearest Bond's going to get in terms of Roger Moore's to a Tracy. He's not going to... I think you see Pierce Brosnan gets, and Daniel Craig get more attached to their women, whereas um, Roger Moore, you know, he just gets rid of her. And there's actually a scene in The View to a Kill where Maud Adams is in that scene, um, I think when they're down um, at the docks, where she's in the background. And I do wonder whether they scripted that in as probably Octopussy stalking him, <laughs> being a bit annoyed that she's dumped him and ghosted her. Yeah, that's... Um... It's a good point because we talked about the fact that she was uncredited in Interview to a Kill and I do wonder whether it was just kind of to leave options open. So there's, like you said, it could be a, a recall for Octopussy or, or was she playing a completely different character? Because let's not forget Maud Adams was in a Bond film. Was it uh, The Man with the Golden Gun she was in? Yeah, that's it, yeah. As someone completely different. So maybe, maybe it was a three for three, but uh, it was never fleshed out. But uh, yeah, interesting point around how Moore treats his women versus... 
versus other actors. That's uh, something to consider. Maybe maybe something we've spoken about on the main pod, or if not, we should. I think, uh, my opinion is, he's the most ruthless out of all the Bonds. He has a happy sort of smile. I mean, he's the only person who makes a joke out of someone as he kills them. You know, you've got to be a pretty um, hard person to do that. Um, but in seriousness, he's actually, there's a bit in, I think, The Spy I Love Me, where he uses woman as a human shield. He he is, I think, actually quite, there's a couple of times where that switch gets flicked. You see, an octopus, he can be a bit quite curt in his response. And there is the view to a kill as well. There, there, is, there are a few films where he, he can actually be quite sharp and quite dark. And I think in For Your Eyes Only, you see how he kills Locke. You know, he, he he's, he's, you know, he's very much out of revenge there. So I think, actually, Roger Moore is almost like, a bit like the sort of Sylvester McCoy Doctor Who sort of thing, where you see it looks like a clown on the surface, but behind the scenes is a much darker sort of persona. So, Stuart, you've told us what your favourite Bond film is. What about, let's go to the extreme, what is your worst? Bond film? Diamonds are forever unfortunately um, it, it was tossed up between that and A Quantum of Solace to be honest just because it's a genuinely bad film unfortunately Sean Connery does one of his um, worst performances it's a shame because he is Bond you know it's um, I always say if you're ever going to debate a best Bond if someone says it's Connery you're very hard to go against that, to be honest. Anyone else you could probably have a conversation about, but he's just so bad in this. He, he really very much dials the film in. You've got his wife's just been murdered, and he's having a little chat with, you know, Blofeld. It's just uh, Charles Gray, isn't it? I think he plays him. Um, you've got uh, OTT Camp Blofeld, who would even probably um, make Roger Moore look serious at times, you know, in the role. Um, after, like I said, the fact that his wife's been murdered, there just was... No, nothing there other than the opening scene you know where he's going where's Blofeld where's Blofeld but even then it's like there's a comedic element to it the one thing I would say which I think obviously the, the song is very good you know you've got um, it's probably I think Shirley Bassey said it's his favourite uh, favourite song that's very good I think yeah it's 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 a shame because there are elements where you know it, it could be um, a decent film but I think Mr Kid and Mr Winter are the only really I think good parts of the film I think you know that that they are genuinely quite creepy, but that's about it. To be honest, I just think it's it's quite a boring film as well. To be honest, to watch it, it's a shame. It's it's it really is a bit. But it the actual more lightheartedness of it actually segues quite well into Live and Let Die. Then so you've got, I think, if you'd have had the tragedy of um you know the end of Honor Majesty's Secret and suddenly you know. Roger Moore looking quite happy, you know, unzipping some Italian um, girl's dress in the first scene probably wouldn't work as well. So as much as it's not a great film, it does sort of segue well into, I think, the film that follows it. That's interesting, Andy, because we, we picked up on some of those things as well, didn't we, about, especially at the beginning, where we're saying, obviously, Bond had just lost Tracy. And we, we mentioned that, didn't we, how it, it was totally different from going from Lazenby, where obviously Tracy has died. And then that op- those opening scenes in Diamonds of Forever, we we discussed that in that pod, didn't we? The episode we did, yeah. It was it was almost like the tone wasn't right. And uh, Stuart, to your point around you know the ending of Honor Majesty's Secret Service with the death of his wife, you'd think he'd be a little bit more mournful. But but you're right in terms of you know they didn't go too far with it like they would have done with Roger Moore. So that's uh, that's quite interesting. And Diamonds of Forever, I think, ranks pretty low on our list of Connery films as well so definitely uh, definitely in agreement there so you mentioned connery and as kind of being a lot of people's favorites and arguably that would be right i've described him on in the pod as the quintessential bond but who would you say is your favorite bond actor roger moore is very close between him and pierce Brosnan. that um i think if you look at all the films, I don't think Roger Moore genuinely gives a bad performance in any of his films. Whether you like them or not, he's usually... He loves the role. You can tell that. I think there's some brilliant promos that people post sometimes of him. He genuinely loves the role. And I think that comes through. And his just style, I think, is is brilliant. I, I, I love his approach. I very much fits in with what I like about the Bond films. It Yeah, it's not as near to Fleming as people would, some people would like. Um, I understand that. But... You have to have Roger Moore for the franchise to continue. If you don't have Roger Moore, you've got nothing else. You have to have that step change from Connery. Lazenby, I don't think did a bad job. And, you know, I think I was brought up very much, you know, to, to be told Lazenby was terrible and the Magic Secret Service was terrible. You know, being brought up by parents born in the 50s and 60s, that was their impression. But what he did was he tried to play it too close of it to Connery. There wasn't much 
you know, there wasn't much to I think it would have come through in later films if it had done it. Whereas Roger Moore is so confident, he doesn't even turn up in the opening scene for his first film. It's like, you know, it's that sort of classic sort of Roger Moore thing, where he's that, you know, it just, it oozes his confidence, I think, in Live and Let Die. You see the variety, though, which I think he doesn't get credited for, in, like I said, For Your Eyes Only. You know, that's a much um, stronger film. And in terms of... um. His, him being much more serious in there. And like I said, that scene where he kills Locke, there is a general cold heart, not just cold heart, there's a sense of revenge there. Yes, he's a professional, he's going to do a job. Um, you know, he stands down the car and shoots it, but then he just kicks the guy over the edge. You know, he's um, he's out he's out for revenge as well. So I think there's a lot of variety in Moore's Bond, and he paves the way for all the others. That That's, why, that's my opinion. So Stuart, you mentioned about the confidence. Do you think the confidence came through because Roger Moore was established TV star? Uh, maybe. I think it's just his personality. Um, there was someone, I think, who posted an article the week saying about he wouldn't do Aspects of Love. I mean, he's apparently supposed to do this um, Andrew Lloyd Webber play um, sometime in the 80s and pulled out right at the last minute because he felt he couldn't do it. I think as much as he didn't give himself enough credit for Bond, he was quite at home doing it. Yes, I think there's an element of him being an established star, which I know some people have... Um, pointed on in the past but there must have been a lot of pressure i think on him because of the fact that lazenby like it or not had effectively flopped sean connery's film had completely bombed in terms of what you know in terms of um not so much in terms of revenue but in terms of performance he was basically there to sort of pick up and save the franchise which yeah he, i think he just has that sort of natural confidence i think about him if you ever see him interviewed um, you know, when he was alive, he had a he had a great sort of confidence and naturalness about him. Probably, I think more than anyone else. I think out of all the bonds. And uh, one more, one more, more question from me. Uh, it's obviously he did the most films of any Bond actor with seven. Do you think he outstayed his welcome? Because by the time he finished, he was in his late fifties. So, did do you think he should have ended sooner, or was seven the right number, or, or could he have even done more than that? I think it's the right number. I think. One of the things that seems to trend a lot at the moment is talking about doing an old man Bond film, you know, potentially whether they did a one-off with Dalton or Brosnan. But the thing is, if you actually look at the plot of A View to a Kill, you've got, that is effectively your older Bond film. You've got some Bond who's near the end of his career, and you've got him up against the hotshot ex-KGB agent who's, you know, in his, um, probably in his late 20s, early 30s at the time, and Christopher Walken. So I think that was actually a good place for him to finish. You've got, you know, the whole um, Sinjin, Smythe and Tibbet relationship that you wouldn't have had for any other actor. I think, yeah, it, he, you know, that was um, a nice little dynamic there because you've got a good sort of, um, you know, sort of what you call ally or whatever it is in that. He was, um, you know, quite fun. You had Grace Jones um, as Mayday. Yeah, some interesting stories about her on set, I believe. But, yeah, um, she was brilliant. She, she, you know, she was, again, a very iconic, you've got an iconic, henchman you've got an IH person you've got an iconic Bond villain you've got yeah Patrick Manee does a great job filling in I like Tanya Roberts some some people don't and you've got a classic Bond song as well in um you know Duran Duran's A View to Kill so I think it was a good place for him to finish I don't think he should have done any more I think it's um yeah I, I, I don't I think as much as I think The Living Daylights is a more slash Brosnan film which poor old Dalton gets lumbered with because you, you could imagine Roger Moore on a um, horse in the middle of Afghanistan looking a bit ridiculous because he'd have been perfectly fine with that it just doesn't really and Brosnan could have done it as well but it doesn't really strike the same chord with Dalton's more serious bond so no I think I think yeah I think that was that was the right number I don't think you should have done any more than that and just before I move on to my next question you've obviously just mentioned Pierce Brosnan was also one of your favourite actors. Why do you like Pierce Brosnan? I think he's he's has a brilliant balance. Um, you know, it, it gets sometimes tarnished as a sort of jack of all trades sort of um tag, but I do think he genuinely has great balance. He actually has the most deadly gun barrel. If you see him, he, he's the quickest. If he, you know, it's um you've got no chance to draw that gun if he's going to go up against you. It's I, I don't know how, how he naturally seems to um yeah do that quite well in general. He's I think he's the most balanced out of all of them. He can do... He, he, he was as well. He reinvented Bond again, if you look at it, just as Moore saved it to a certain extent, or at least kept it going. Brosnan genuinely did save it because he turned it into a 90s action hero, which is because, you know, the set up to, I think, Goldeneye, I think that potentially the kill count Brosnan has in Goldeneye 
could potentially be higher than potentially I think Connor is or something. It's um he kills everyone basically. There's a scene, isn't there, where he's in the um in the library where he mows down loads and loads of people. So I think that so I I love I think he's such a sense of style as well. Like I said, I had the mojito because he had the mojito. I've got an Omega um not one of his, um, but I've got an Omega, you know, because, again, it's the whole sense of style. I did try a turtleneck once, but it didn't really work, so we sort of left that one alone. But Because what you see now with Daniel Craig, is it's weird style. I don't know. It's like, if I was going to turn up to some henchman's, you know, island lair, I would not be turning up in some sort of weird, virtually like dungaree sort of thing. He's got braces on him. One, I mean, what sort of secret agent turns up, you know, on some sort of in the most impractical outfit? It looks like he's got a jumper as well. It looks like quite a hot place. And so, you know, it's like, and they're, they're in a radioactive room as well where there's a lot of heat. Yeah, so it's a bit, I think Pierce Brosnan was the stylish of all the Bonds. I think that's um, as much as Connery looked as at ease in the role itself. I think Pierce Brosnan set was the video game bond he was the um yeah style bond as well i think there was a lot of things that he did which again paid the way for someone like daniel craig to do something completely different again because you know if you didn't if you'd have kept it with dalton i think the franchise personally would have died because you couldn't have had daniel craig sort of personality following dalton's because it would have just been too similar so i think they, they really did all the bonds contrast each other quite well so Stuart, moving on to theme music of the bond franchise what is your favorite theme song I love License to Kill. Gladys Knight does a fantastic job with that. I think it's... Uh, I always I always like the Divas doing the songs. Um, I think she... Yeah, she's got such a great delivery there. There's a lot of... Yeah, yeah there's, there's a lot of hit to it. It's... Um, yeah, she does She does a really good um, a job with that. And I think it's... Um, it, it, it just is a great tune. So you've got, you got, you know, you've got a great singer and you've got, you know, a great tune. It's probably one, uh, I think... Of, uh, I'm trying to think if it's... Um, yeah, other than sort of um, Adele, it's probably one of the big last sort of diva deliveries of um, a Bond song. Yeah, it, it seems to be a lot more sort of bands, and um, I think they're always trying to go down rock in some respects. I must admit, personally at the moment, I think, I like Billie Eilish's one, but I thought Sam Smith's and Writing on the Wall was terrible. I think, it's, um, I think it needs to sit with a punchy song. You know, you do get the odd ballad, but I think, yeah, get a diva to do it, and I think Gladys Knight does a great job of delivering it. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on with your analogy there because when we get into the Brosnan era, it does kind of go more rock and arguably a little bit grunge and then with, with Craig, um, a real step change with Chris Cornell and then they kind of bring it back to the classics, don't they, with, with Adele and Billie Eilish. So that's a, it's a very good analogy. Speaking of divas of a different kind, though, from the franchise, who would you say is your favourite Bond girl? This is where I lose any sort of credibility at all. It's the wonderful Denise Richards' Christmas Jones. Um, I was actually looking, just for research purposes, for this um, you know, podcast that we're going to do, the outfit that she was wearing, just to see if I got it right. And they basically have got her dressed up like Lara Croft. It's, you know, it's, there, there is. It's like the American Lara Croft. If you look at it, it's um, she's, it does. It looks like, you know, sort of Tomb Raider. Now, to be fair, in my defence, what I have gone for is a very highbrow sort of person because she's a nuclear physicist. You know, it's Boston seems to have quite a few, you know, sort of um, he has um, a computer genius in one film and, and a nuclear physicist in another. So I just like Denise Richards. There is no credibility to that. I think if you look at it from an acting point of view, Diana Rigg is the, um, you know, the best. She's um, but I think for my favourite. Uh, yeah, I just love Denise Richards. Yes, I, I, unfortunately, there is there is no sort of credible thing to say about her brilliant delivery of the role. I don't think she's as bad as they say she is. She does a decent job. I think it just doesn't look very credible. I don't think it's her being a nuclear physicist that's the problem. I think it's having a nuclear physicist who wears incredibly short shorts and, you know, type, it just... Fair enough, you might have nuclear physicists who do that now, but I think it just, yeah, they try to sort of sexualise the characters, obviously what they do with the Bond girls, especially back then, but you can't really sexualise someone to try and be a, a nuclear physicist. Seems a bit out of um, sync, to be honest. We've spoken about Bond actors and Bond girls. What's your favourite villain? This could be a main villain or one of the henchmen. Uh, my favourite villain is Teddy Sabalas' Blofeld. I think he does a fantastic job. Because, again, if you go back to, I think, um, what I was saying about the way that um, Octopus very much lays in the henchman not having to do the dirty work for the villain, so they don't force a fight scene that looks ridiculous. Other than, you know... Um, Brunt, who basically is, um, or Bunt, sorry, who basically is the um, Austin Powers um, one who um, keeps on, you know, screaming, sending the clones, or whatever it is. There isn't really any henchmen there for him other than, you know, the staff. So 
Telesavalis' blow, if I'd say he plays it like an American gangster, he does, but he's got the physicality. He very much is everything in terms of the villains and the henchmen, almost in one. But Daniel Craig's Bond, he's, he, you know, he's, he's smart, he's got um, a very smart plan, but he's also got that physicality to take on George Lazenby. Interesting, though, originally when Sean Connery was still down to do the film, it was Yul Brynner who was um, cast as... Um, I believe he was actually... I read an article that he's, I believe he was actually cast as... Um, Blofeld. That's weird because obviously Tifalis is a, like I said, my favourite villain. But I would love to have seen as well how you know Ramesses would have um, played um, Blofeld. It would. He's, he's a cracking actor, Yul Brynner. You know, I'd love it if there was a uh, let my let the virus go line. You know, like when um, Charlton Eston keeps on asking him to let his people go. That would have been quite interesting. But um, I think. It's, you don't lose anything in having Savalas, but it's just another one of those interesting Bond moments where how the franchise would have gone if, um, yeah, it would have been him playing the villain. We talked about his physicality, didn't we, Andy, in, in on A Majesty's Secret Service? We did, because it was very, very different to what we'd seen from Blofeld in the in the Connery films. I mean, in, mm. in some cases, we, we barely saw Blofeld at all. We just knew that he was part of the film, or we'd see an arm, or we'd see the back of a head or something, so... Savalas being front and centre was quite a departure from what we'd seen for the most part previously. So, uh, yeah, very, very different portrayal than than what we'd seen in the Connery films. Stuart, you mentioned Blofeld is your favourite villain. Do you have any other Blofelds or what do you think of the other Blofelds in the franchise? I think if we start with the latest one, I think Christoph Waltz is severely... Um, Badly used, to be perfectly honest. I think it's um, there is a petulance to you know the character that completely undermines you know what, what basically uh, anything about him. To be perfectly honest, it's a shame because he's a great actor. But what Daniel Craig would have done well to have a physical blow felt. To be honest, you know Daniel Craig's Bond is a very physical Bond. Even though I did say the other day that actually he's the worst fighter out of all the Bonds because it takes about 10 minutes to kill someone. Roger Moore's killed him within about five seconds. You know he's lifted his eyebrow and the person's dead. You know, Daniel Craig looks like hell after, you know, he's got into a fight. But I think he's he would have benefited from... Um, but obviously, Dave Batista worked very well. So, again, it was that sort of complimenting each other. And they don't make the mistake of making Christoph Waltz fight him. But I do think he's weak, and so is Charles Gray. But it's interesting, as much as all the Bonds are different, the Blofelds are radically different. Donald Pleasance, you know, is brilliant in his, you know, few minutes um, as Blofeld. Like I said, Telly Savalas is... Um, but they're all very different, regardless of how you look at it, whether you like them or not. Each actor is given a completely different free reign as to how they portray them. And, you know, for the listeners of our podcast, we, me and Andy obviously ranking each of the, the villains as well. So you can check out on our website where we've got the different Blofeld interpretations as well. Indeed you can. And another thing we talk about in our main pod are the memorable scenes from each film. So Stuart, with a bit of a wider range here, from any film of the Bond franchise, what would you say is the most memorable, or if you have a few, you know, from, from the 25 to choose from, what would you say is the most memorable scene or scenes from the franchise? One of the most memorable ones to me, it's not an action one, is I think it's actually where, again, he gets a very bad rep for his delivery, is the scene where George Lazenby is at the ice rink. There is, um, you, yeah, you get that one in Diamonds Forever where... Um, um, I think Thomas was on the ball, I can't remember now where it's uh, probably for the ball thing actually where he's been um, chased where he's got shot in the foot but you've sensed the vulnerability I think Connery's bond was always too cool whereas Lazenby if you read the books and that's one we will mention with Fleming especially if you read on Imagine Secret Service he constantly doubts himself you know he's talking about how bad a scare he is and stuff like that as he's doing it Whereas obviously in the films he is, and he's always brilliant at everything. But you get that moment there where he's genuinely terrified. He's like got nowhere to go. He's, um, you know, he, he's got all these people who are chasing him. He needs to, you know, let his superiors know that a virus is about to be released. And then obviously you get the scene where Tracy comes up and um, effectively saves him. So I think that was what I had as a very memorable scene. I think it's one of the um, most powerful scenes, I think, of um, all the Bond films, in my opinion. That's interesting because we've also discussed that, Andy, as well, didn't we, about the, the ice rink and Lazenby, kind of how he portrayed Bond in his one outing. Yeah, I think the, the vulnerability is something we, we picked up on as well, which not something we, I, I don't think we ever saw from Connery. Um, so, yeah, that just added a, a different dimension to the character for sure. Yeah, I think Connery is brilliant because he is the stone cold killer and I don't think as much as I'd like I would love to have seen what Yul Brynner would have been like I think Connery in that film would have been a bad I don't think 
he would have had that delivery at the end. I mean, he's a cracking actor, so maybe he would have done, but it would have been a complete step change from his bond. That might not have been a bad thing, I suppose, to see someone broken, but I think it's a shame for George Lazenby because actually I think it would have helped him in his whole career as an actor. If he'd have had two or three films, you know, it would have helped him. I think he'd have grown into the role, and I think, um, you know, he, he probably would have had a very, very different career than the one he had in the end. Because there definitely were some green shoots there or someone who could have been a good Bond. Moving on to our next question. In this season, we're obviously looking at the different gadgets that Bond has. And we've had the Geiger counter, Little Nelly, the, the jet, jet backpack. So, Stuart, from the whole franchise, what is your favourite gadget and which film was it from? I like the laser firing watch in Goldeneye. Again, I wanted no Omega after that. It's um, Pierce Brosnan's is a fantastic thing of product placement because you don't really know it's there. I think when they did Casino Royale, Daniel Craig's staring at a Sony Ericsson for about five minutes. You can clearly tell that's product placement. And the guy's driving a bloody Ford Focus at one point. I mean, Bond is not going to be driving around in a Ford Focus. So, but it, it, they did it. They did it very well. I think it's um, it just looked very cool, that um, laser. Well, I remember playing Goldeneye as well. You we had to use that in Goldeneye as well. So it's... Um, um, I love that. It's not probably one of the best gadgets. You had the exploding pen in the film as well. But I just, I just love that. It's, it's, it just is a cool little thing, that um, yeah, that laser on the watch. While we're talking about gadgets, do you think the Bosnian era went a bit too far with the gadgets? Or as a, as a whole, what do you think about the gadgets in the Bond franchise? I like the gadgets. You know, the, the, it, like I said, it's um, I think someone put something about Mickey Mouse's clubhouse. You know, and have like a secret tool that appears at the end. It is a bit like that, where you've got like some gadget that's never going to work in any other thing other than that particular scenario in the film. Like Noctopus, you know, he's got a pen that can dissolve metal bars. That, you know, to be fair, might be quite practical in all the films because he might get in prison at some point. But, yeah, you've got laser watch that is only used for cutting the floor and is never used for anything else. Um, the exploding pen as well would work quite well. I, I think it's quite good. I think what I was quite annoyed at when I watched Skyfall was them sort of, you know, take the mick out of the exploding pen. And I thought that was a bit of a... Um, cheap shot i thought that you didn't need to do to the franchise you know it's if you want to be more grounded that's fine but i think you know the gadgets have a place i mean you know as you know the, the vanish as they call it in um dying of a days you know a bit ott but it's a very very cool car and it's actually quite a as much as you know the film itself is very disjointed it's quite a cool scene when you've got the jaguar and the um aston martin having a little battle between each other um so i think yeah the gadgets um i, I don't think they're overly used in boston's film i think they um you look at like Tomorrow Never Dies, he has the um, repel he uses. Um, you've got, yeah, they use that in Goldeneye as well. Um, you've got the phone that manages to electrocute someone and open the door at the same time, you know. it's um, And you've got that fantastic scene with the BMW. So I think, again, I think what they do well with the gadgets is each Bond seems to fit its time. Again, Brosnan was very much a computer Bond. I mean, if you look at it, the only decent games that have ever been released, Bond games, are ones with Pierce Brosnan in it. You know, you've got um, Goldeneye or everything or nothing. And, you know, Tomorrow Never Dies, I think, had that. And I think that's where... So, for me, I think the gadgets seem to fit the bond. So, Craig's pulled them back a bit and started introducing them a bit more. So, I think, yeah, I think they fit quite well. I think, yeah, okay, you have got Fiora... It's not Fiora, so you only live twice. Where you've got, um, you know, the... the the weird helicopter that goes flying around that um, Sean Connery can make. But no, I think in general, there aren't too many films where the gadgets go OTT. I think where they do will be on the villain side, not on Bond side. Like where you get those laser satellites, which is quite funny actually. Die Another Day is no longer as far-fetched because they are trying to develop a satellite now that can um, warm parts of the world. So um, I'm, I'm sure Lee Tamahori, who directed it, is probably looking there, you know, feeling a bit more smug now. You know, the fact that it's, it's... I don't think we're ever going to be doing CGI um, surfing on the back of um, some bashed-up car with a parachute. You know, I don't think that's going to be happening. But at least, you know, which actually is quite funny because that looks more far-fetched than the satellite now. But, yeah, so I think... Definitely, I think with Bond is fine. But I think, yeah, the only place where it might be a bit much sometimes is some of the villains. Yeah, that was a good point because we, we tend to talk about the Bond gadgets more than the villain gadgets. But, yeah, that's, that's an interesting twist on things. Now, let's just talk a little bit about the low points of the franchise. So obviously it's been 60 plus years now of Bond. It's a roller coaster ride, highs and lows. But what would you say is or was the lowest point of the franchise? Most people probably point to, I think, the hiatus for, for Dalton. But actually, I think it's where we're at now. The the, fran the fans are getting treated quite badly, I think. And, and the viewing public are, you know, it's like they pushed the film so many times during COVID to the point of they were lucky it was um, people still wanted to see it. But it seemed to become a massive Daniel Craig ego fest now. 
it's like, you know, apparently he, he, I think he'd had talks right at the start for killing Bond off, um, was eventually where they were looking to go. Um, and I think that Barbara Broccoli seems to have this fixation with him. He's her Bond, the first one that she could pick. And I think, you know, she seems to have some trouble moving on from that. And it just seems that, I mean, it's like the, I was saying with the anniversary this year, you know, instead of doing a nice new box set, you know, it's not just for the fans, it would sell well, they always sell well. What we've had is a the 1% sort of event. I think the highlight is um, some very expensive whiskey you can buy on the Bond site, or an Omega watch launch, which, you know, people who've got a load of money can go to. They seem to be taking, I think, the fans for granted, and I think the general viewing audience for granted. And I think it worries me a bit like they're talking about reinventing him again. I think you'd look at Mission Impossible, Tom Cruise's character's pretty much the same throughout. You don't have to reinvent, you just have to write well. And I think actually, if they'd use the Moonraker book for the next film, so not the, not the film, but the actual book itself, and having a plot where you've got some person who's supposed to be developing a missile defence system that ends up actually turning into a weapon would be quite, I think, um, topical at the moment. So, But they do always say they go back to Fleming, so it'd be interesting to see if they do. But yeah, I think at the moment, it does seem to be a bit of a worrying time for the franchise because... Yeah, it just seems to be more about the actor rather than Bond himself. And you look at all the great Bonds, you look at Connery, Brosnan and Moore, they are Bond. They're not They're not about Bond's personal life or anything like that. You know, it, they're, they're flashes of it. Whereas Daniel Craig's has come a bit melodrama and I think actually he's the one who's outstayed his welcome. I think if they set up perfectly for him to leave at the end of Spectre, you know, his Bond drives off into the distance. I did wonder whether she's going to get killed um, as it happens, but his, you know, his Bond drives off into the distance and that could have ended there. So I think, yeah, I think it's it's quite worrying times of the franchise at the moment, I think. Hopefully they'll get a decent actor in and they get some, you know, they get some decent scripts as well and they actually let the directors and the writers have more control rather than the actor himself. I've got two questions there, Stuart, following your answer. What do you think the future looks like in terms of Amazon owning the, the rights of the Bond films? And also, in terms of the lowest point, what did you think about Daniel Craig, where his films had that con- kind of continuity, whereas previously each film was kind of like in a silo? Um, I suppose Amazon first, because they only own the distribution rights, They can't, I don't think they can push them too far. Um, They've got a game show or something that's supposed to be on at some point, which is a weird thing to do, to be perfectly honest. Um, I don't think you need the Bond-verse like you do the Marvel-verse. I think it would be... I do agree with some of the fans who think it would be good to have a one-off. You could have sandwiched it in between. A one-off old man Bond if you wanted to put Brosnan or Dalton in. I think it would be quite interesting, because you actually could have actually had a proper follow-up to on the Magic's Secret Service then. You know, potentially tracks down Blofeld X amount of years later. But I think Dev, um, Broccoli and Wilson are very much in control. And I think it's... Um, I don't think Amazon will actually have that much of an effect because I think if they try and step in they just won't do the films or something so I think you'd have that massive problem that they've had before I don't think Amazon want that but I do think their patience will be tested if they don't release films in a timely manner well they couldn't get the rights I believe to Spectre when they first did the um, films so they shoehorned it in after Skyfall which was a mistake you didn't have to have Silver's character linked I think they linked everything and it was just seemed a bit too much then you had you could obviously have the sheaf I get that but you know Silver seemed to be a guy who was just out for revenge almost like a camp version of Dalton's um, license to kill he just wanted revenge so you uh, they didn't allow him really to have a proper standalone film then it was actually everything was forced to be linked and it couldn't work well. What happened was I think people have mentioned this in the past was you never had a bond on a mission virtually it was never you you know you don't have that you had a bit at the start of spectre and that's about it really um casino royale he okay you get that a little bit he goes off the rails at the start and again but you don't have that you know continuity of bond going in getting his orders it's all about bond the person not bond as i think um timothy dalton said as a tool which i think is probably how he should be depending you know it's different in terms of how you deliver each time but he is there as a tool for the british government you can still have and that's what i think potentially that's where the actor's skill comes in is to be able to show a person underneath that role without showing too much connery did it brilliantly you know he's a cold-hearted assassin you know he, he was just cool he was just as cool as you could get whereas daniel craig i think it's like i said it's been ego it's, it's fed in a bit too much and this continuity has helped with that so i hope whoever they put in next they just have a sort of you can have one or two loosely connected but it just doesn't become then about bond the person you know bond and his mel- melodramatic life in our regular episodes, we, we talk about 
favorite one-liners quotes and me and Andy do a, a bit of acting there we kind of get you know show off our acting chops do you have any particular one-liners or quotes that you like from the franchise um yes but I don't think you can get any acting chops from me for I think that would be probably um <laughs> that'll be a low point for this I think um be quite ironic actually following on from that question wouldn't it but um now I think my favourite quote is actually in the Bond film, it's about Bond. Roger Moore, when he's interviewed, says the, um, the Bond situations to me are ridiculous. So you basically have yeah, you basically have someone who is recognised by everyone, is basically what he's saying. He says, you know, ev- every villain knows his name, every um, bartender knows that he has a vodka martini. He says it's just it's just outrageous. I'm paraphrasing a bit here, um, but it's um, he just says it's outrageous. I love that. It's his, you know, he said he's basically a terrible spy is what Sir Roger's saying. It's true. It's like, you know, there aren't many people who don't know who he is. They all know he's coming. Other than, you know, in a few films, most of the time, they quite clearly know he's coming for them. Yeah, he, he, he's not a spy. He's an assassin, I think, really, um, in a lot of the films. I don't think he's a spy. And I do love the fact that he says, yeah, every bartender knows that he um, takes a vodka martini. Yeah, we spoke about this, um, particularly in You Only Live Twice, where his, his death was splashed all over the front page of the newspaper. I mean, that's... <laughs> you say secret agent, but... There's nothing secretive about the front page of the newspaper. So uh, it's an interesting quote there by by Moore, and he's absolutely spot on. One more thing that we also talk about in the main pod is any differences between Bond film and Bond books. Now, openly admit, I've not read many of the books myself. I've read the, the short stories, but not many of the, the novels. Have you read any of the novels, either the Ian Fleming ones or any of the more recent ones that have been written? Um, I've read most of the Fleming books. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because one of the first things you get is like, who do you see as Bond? And actually, the one that I think fits them the most is actually Lazenby. Not, none of them really fit it completely. Actually, as you're reading them, you almost see different Bonds. I don't think Dalton fits it. I don't see that at all. I know that's a very big argument for Dalton fans. But actually, I I think the one that fits it the most is Lazenby. But the you know, Bond books... Um, Live and Let Die is quite a tough read because it is quite racist in its language. There's no getting around that. It is. It's quite a difficult read, I think, at times. But I think the classic ones you've got are books like um, yeah, you've got Casino Royale is is really good. And Moonraker is a completely different from the film. They do not go into space at all. I think someone just nicked that title and thought it'd be a good idea to do a Star Wars style film and with the lasers. Um, but then you've got um, I Love On Imagine Secret Service as well. That's a very good book as well. It, yeah, so I've, I think yeah I've read I think Carte Blanche as well out of the um, other books where you got some weird guy with long fingernails as the villain who owns a recycling company or something. Because um, yeah, that that's probably doesn't hit the high of Fleming. I think um, you clearly do see that. But some of Fleming's are quite weird as well. I mean, I, the um, Man with a Golden Gun is quite a weak book, you know. It's he didn't always hit the park, and I think it's the one book I would say is never read that book after watching the film because the guy is completely different to Christopher Lee, and it's quite it's quite jarring actually. It's um, um, because Christopher Lee's brilliant in his delivery, and you've got a completely different sort of guy who's nowhere near as charismatic, and it does it. It's a weak book anyway, and it probably makes it a bit worse. One of the things lots of people talk about and on different forums to in the Bond community and we've, we've also spoke about it on the rating room as well is who should be the next Bond actor? So Stuart, who, do you, who would you pick or one or two actors that kind of spring to mind? It's interesting seeing the um, article I think put out about Aaron Taylor-Johnson so that's an interesting one but I think if you looked at it from my point of view, I think you'd look at someone, if you want someone a bit more serious, you'd look for someone potentially like an Aidan Turner sort of person. Yes, he's he's, um, he's most famous Poldark. He's one of the Agatha Christie um, adaptations where he um, played a, a more sort of serious character quite well. But then you've got Richard Madden. If you want that person who could potentially do, I think, a more Brosnan-esque or in between a Craig and Brosnan-esque sort of bond. So I think he was very good in The Bodyguard. Um, I've seen Game of Thrones as well. I think he would be quite a good choice. I mean, I would always have loved to add a Michael Fassbender or, you know, Idris Elba, but I don't think that that's going to happen. They're probably um, um, either too old or too established now. I think it's got to be someone probably in their mid to late 30s, potentially. Yeah, or early 40s. You can't have someone who's either approaching 50 or over 50 now, it's just not going to work. From an ideal situation, Stuart, how many films would you like the next James Bond actor to do? 
I think if you do well, you could have five. I think Drosden was unlucky not to have a fifth. I think it's uh, they just ran out of ideas. Other than I think Quinton Tarantino's interesting take on Casino Royale, which I, don't, I think would have just had Uma Thurman with a knife cutting a load of people up, which because she she was the one who wanted to play Vespa. Um, but I think four four or five. I think it's um you need. I think anything else is two less, unless you've got a really really you know, good actor. I think, I think gone are the days of, um, you know, sort of Connery and Moore's um, number of films. I think probably five is the most, I think five is the most you'll get out of an actor as well. I think a lot of them worry about being typecast now. I think unless you get someone who is like Brosnan or Moore who actually loves playing Bond, you see a lot of Daniel Craig's quotes, hated it at times. So, um, I think, yeah, I think four or five to get the best out of the actor and to get the best out of the storylines. Yeah, we, we've had this debate as well on a, on another bonus episode. And I guess it doesn't help that the films are released slightly less often than they used to be. Obviously, back in Connery's day, it was one per year. So he actually wasn't Bond for that long in terms of time. He just managed to film a lot of films, whereas, you know, Craig, for example, was Bond for 15 years. And Connery was only Bond for nine, if my maths is correct. So the the longevity is different because I guess the gap between films is now... It's now greater. I want to ask one more question, though, before we get into the meat and potatoes of the, the podcast and talk ratings. Was there a film of the Bond franchise that you were really looking forward to for for whatever reason, and did it meet your expectations? It would have been Die Another Day, and sadly, no. I remember watching it, you know, he even had the funky, you know, Madonna song at the start. Um, so he had the brilliant um, bit where he's about to be tortured, you know, which was quite unique, and had him tortured through the credits, which was quite interesting. And then you had, yeah, Madonna's wonderful, you know, song where she managed to slip Sigmund Freud somehow into the song, which was um, interesting, with your funky little disco sort of thing. People don't like the song, but I like that. Then you had the first sort of quarter of the first half where... You know, you genuinely see him trying to get himself back and then he goes to Cuba and then it all falls over, unfortunately. It was a shame because I was very much looking forward to that. Just fell a bit flat, to be perfectly honest, um, for the second half, really did knock it over. I think if they'd have had the guts to stay as grounded as they did in the first half, they'd have had a very special film. Um, unfortunately, you know, ha- destroying a whole fencing club and then, you know, having, um, yeah, some ice hotel that gets melted and then some guy with some very weird S&M style um, outfit that he has that electrocutes some electrocution sort of self-defense thing is, yeah, very weird. So it's just a shame. I was really, really looking forward to that. And yeah, it just, uh, it's still, you know, it's, 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 it's not as bad a film to watch people say, but sometimes you do sort of get to the second half and switch off a bit. What what did you think of the, the main villain and the Bond girls in Dying of a Day? Halle Berry is badly used, I think, personally. I think, actually, she's outshone by Rosamund Pike. I think Rosamund Pike's Amanda Frost is better, I think. She's almost Halle Berry. Yeah, you have that, you know, funny, you know, the, now there's a mouthful or whatever it is sort of line, but she's trying to almost be too Bond-esque herself, which um, isn't too bad, but she just doesn't really have that much to do. It's a, it's a, it's a waste of, um, you know, Academy Award-winning actress, to be perfectly honest. Um, Toby Stevens. You know, it's an interesting thing to have someone trying to parody Bond as a villain. But, you know, actually, I think you'd have been better to have William Lee um, going throughout the whole film, to be perfectly honest, um, as Colonel Moon. I think it's um, it was a strange, strange film. I think Lee Tamahori just lost it halfway through. I'm sure he's very happy about the article about the satellite now that can heat the world or whatever it is, potentially. But, you know, other than that, he's, yeah, he just he just lost it halfway through, unfortunately. Yeah, we're, we're going to be talking about Dino the day in a, a future episode of the main pod and uh, I wonder if a lot of those points will come up because you make some very very good points there Jay shall we move on to our well what the rating room is all about let's get some ratings involved shall we do you want to do you want to kick us off with the first topic the rating room. yeah so Stuart so what we do in our regular episodes me and andy rate the different elements each week as we rewatch the film so we build up our rankings so the first question to you is can you give us your top five bond films yeah so i've got um on our Majesty's secret service i think that's a cracking film you know very very good you know it's a brilliant performance around that from russia with laura i have after that i think connor is best it is probably the best spy film as well you know, there again, there are very good performances all the way through it. It's, um, you've got great 
you know, Bond, you've got a great Bond girl, you've got a great Bond villain, and a great Bond sort of henchman, who, again, doesn't have to be massively in the film. And if you look at somewhere like um, No Time to Die, that's actually quite, you know, Rosa Klebb is barely in the film, but she has a massive impact. So if you do it right, and even Grant is only in the background for lots of it. So again, it shows you how to do a, a, a film well if you're not going to have that many vil- uh, that many villain appearances. Octopussy, I absolutely love that. We've gone for that earlier. Um, Casino Royale is a very, very good film. I think, you know, the let's destroy a house in Venice at the end because we need an action bit is a bit bizarre, to be perfectly honest. You could easily cut that out. Yeah, I think it makes Homes Under the Hannah look like a hardcore version of it, doesn't it, really, when they're going through and destroying that place? Yeah, but it is a great film. And then you've got Goldeneye. Goldeneye, I think, is a fantastic film. Um, Pierce, as much as Roger, is instantly Bond. And I think, you know, you've got Sean Bean is, is a brilliant Bond villain as well in that. And like I said, it sets the template as Bond moving from being a spy to an action hero. That is effectively what they're doing there. And it's that was one thing I think I think his last move was could be Brockler's um doing that because it was a fantastic because he met that's how he made Bomb relevant was had him with the audiences who wanted to see a lot more action. So yeah that that's my top five. Stuart, was it intentional that you've picked five different films with five different actors? Yes and no. I, I Spy Love Me is potential to come in there, so you'd potentially have two ones as Sir Roger. But genuinely, those are, I think, yeah, my top five. It's um, All of them are great performances um, in them, so it's nearly intentional, but not quite. It's, yeah, it's a fascinating mix. Speaking of fascinating mixes, though, how would you mix up the Bond girls? So do you have a top five? We spoke about one earlier. What about another four to go with her? Yeah, so I put um, Diana Riggs, sort of Tracy Bond, as second um, to the wonderful Christmas Jones. Then we had because you know she she's she's brilliant. She's um she's a it's a fantastically layered sort of performance from Diana, especially with the fact that they genuinely didn't get on with each other. I think um, you know apparently the garlic story where putting garlic in her mouth is not the the, the way it was. Um, put across i think they said uh, she actually actually when she's interviewed said she just had some pate for lunch that's all it was she hadn't purposely said i hated but that was a brilliant urban legend that carried through for years that she hated george lazy that much that she put garlic in her mouth for the kissing scenes but she was brilliant you know she is makes such an impact on there there's vulnerability as well she's not just you know tough person there's some vulnerability there so she does really well you've got um triple x as well i like you know, that sort of balance for more, you know, there's a female spy who's just as good as Bond, which I think is, you know, it's interesting because Bond is obviously uh, portrayed as being quite a sexist film at times. There's quite a lot of pioneering things it's done with women in roles. You know, Dame Judi Dench's M is a brilliant one, you know, that we didn't get that many, especially with action films. We'd have a woman, um, you know, in that sort of lead authority. And I think even back then with The Spy Who Loved Me, you've, yeah, a great, you know, great, um, performance that I think it's a nice dynamic between the two and then my sort of credibility falls off again where you have Stacey Sutton from um, um, A View to a Kill um, I just like Tanya Roberts to be honest I think it, I think again her character gets um, a lot of bad rap um, I think it really does yeah I think she actually does quite she actually does a good performance and again you know it's um, she, she's quite strong she st- you know stands up to um, Christopher Walken's and Zorin and then the last one is Plenty O'Toole in um Diamonds are forever. As much as I like Jill St. John, I think she's actually she's great when she's interviewed about Jock Bond, but she's terrible. And they should have just put plenty of tool in the rest of Lana Wood in the rest of the film. To be honest, when I think there's a line where she said, "I robbed you of a great night," and I thought, "No, you've robbed us of a great film." Unfortunately, um, I think it's just yeah, I, yeah. Again, that's probably more there for aesthetics rather than great delivery. To be honest. So Stuart, just before I move on to the the next top five. Would you like to see Bond girls reappear in the franchise, or, or, or do you like that they only appear in one film? Um, I don't mind about if they do it well. Uh, I think Leah Sadu was, um, I think, it's a very good actress who's probably done, I think, bad jobs with the scripts. I don't think, you know, I, I think Madeline Swan is quite good Inspector. You know, I think it's, it's you know, you've got to have a, da- she's got to be damaged, like Craig's damaged in the next film. It's all. Um, You'd love, I think, and it's a shame he never got it. You know, you can say a bit like Camille and Quantum of Solace, but um, it'd be great for him to have had that sort of Maud Adams sort of character. 
I think that would have been good now. Have her appear in a couple of films. Or, you know, we have Plone would have been a great character to have had in multiple films. Obviously, she only um, appears in the last film. Anna Diarmas, she would have been a brilliant. So I think if you get the actress right, there's no problem. I think originally, I think Halle Berry was supposed to appear in multiple films. So I think, you know, if you have a good actress, there's, there's no problem there. I think they just need to do the writing a bit better for them if they're going to reappear. So the next one is top five Bond villains. And obviously, Stuart, you mentioned Blofeld is your favourite villain. So this can be any primary villains or henchmen. So who are your two, three, four and five in the franchise? I was very tempted to put Kamal Khan in, but I've got just outside of that because I do love Lonely uh, Jones. But I think if you look at the um, impact of the films and the performances, you've got um, Grant is brilliant in From Russia With Love. It's, you know, it's... He doesn't really care about the fact that you have, you should not have red wine with fish, you know. It's it's quite funny because I think that's the most disgusted Connery is with anyone. And it's it's quite a very um, subtle thing, but um I think, you know, it's 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 a brilliant scene because it's um he said, Oh yeah, I should have known you awful because you had red wine with fish. Um but Robert Shaw does a brilliant thing, you know, the contempt that he has. But what undoes him is if you look at it, he's probably he's more than a match and probably better than Bond or what he does. He you know, he's completely played him. But it's greed that, and again, that shows the brilliance of the Bond character, where he kills him through finding his weakness, which is effectively greed. Then you've got our job. Our job is brilliant. You know, it's um. I remember playing Goldeneye with the hat. I could never hit anyone with it, but you know, running around with a little hat, trying to kill someone with a hat was um great. Um, I think I think it's just it's just a brilliant performance. Um, our job. You know, he manages to a bit like you know with Dave Bautista's Hinks. You know, manages to deliver a great performance without saying a word. And then obviously you got Jaws. Jaws is an is you know he is the iconic Bond villain. He you know again a brilliant performance for Richard Keel as a. A fantastic um, sort of physicality. It's a bit like if you had like the Resident Evil games where you have one of those um, like tyrant bosses appear every once in a while. You know it's going to be very hard for one to kill him when he appears. It's gonna it's gonna be a big challenge, and you get get that that, that they did that very well with slotting him into different parts of the Spy Who Loved Me. And I, I you know I love it when he appears in Moonraker. He goes oh he's, he's Jaws. He kills people, which is you know like very deadpan sort of um, delivery of what he does from Roger Moore. And the last one I've got is Electric King. It's a brilliant, brilliant Bond villain for Brosnan. I think um, Robert Carlyle, I don't think plays Renard very well, but I know he's supposed to be cold, etc. But it just comes across as bland. Whereas you have the brilliant performance, you know, for Electric King. It's, um, you can tell Pierce genuinely loves the woman, or is a, a very, at least very attached, and he still kills her. I think that's, you know, is a, is a big sort of moment, I think, in the Bond films. That, you know, that's his Tracy. But Brosnan's Tracy is going to manipulate him. You know, I mean, he's had two Tracy effectively. You see the dynamic between him and Terry Hatcher with Paris Carver, and, you know, she sadly dies. And then he has to kill um, the other woman he potentially loves himself. So it's um yeah I, I thought that was a brilliant I think from um Sophie Marceau was a brilliant performance um I thought I think she does a really really good job. Thanks for that. Now let's get into some main event talk. So the Bond actors we've got six that we've had so far. How would you rank the Bond actors one to six? Um, I have more top than um, Brosnan, Connery, but like I said, it's very hard to argue against anyone who has Connery top. Then you've got Craig, Lazenby, and Dalton. I think for the top three, you know, these are, they're, they're iconic bonds. Craig is as well, but I think Craig doesn't have as much of an identity as he does. If you look at, like, Casino Royale, you know, he's sort of like this hard sort of man who gets, you know, softened, then he's on this path of revenge, playing it like Jason Bourne. I think they did call, I think, and Quantum of Solace the Bond identity at one point was what they were calling it because of the awful fight scene they have just after the opening credits where it's like, you know, they're all like twirling about on ropes and that. So I think Craig's very up and down, I believe, in his delivery. Lazenby, you just never know, you know, what the future would have held for him. I don't think he's a bad Bond, just like Craig isn't a bad Bond necessarily, but you just, you didn't get enough, I think, from Lazenby. You could imagine the Hillary Bray scene, you know, in On the Majesty's Secret Service. Roger Moore would have been perfect doing that. He would have just been in his elements. And it's, you know, it's, I think he was dubbed. I'm sure someone said he was dubbed for that, George Lazenby. Um, and then last one I've got is Dalton. I think he's brilliant in Licence to Kill. I just don't, a lot of people love The Living Daylights. I don't like the film. I try, I've watched it quite a lot of times to see, you know, have I missed something. But I just feel, and now I know it's not supposed to be, but it just feels like a film that was written for Brosnan. It really does i know he pulled out last minute and said it was rewritten but it does seem like to me you could imagine brosnan looking ridiculous like roger moore in afghanistan on a horse trying to dress like an arab shake 
it just doesn't work for Dalton. License to Kill is Dalton's film, really, I think. I think he's probably a bit too grumpy for me, to be honest. I think you could actually... If you, I had some video talent. I wanted to do Victor Meldrew delivering his lines because you could have easily put enough together. I'm sure there's a bit where he goes, you're bloody lucky to be alive and one foot in the grave. So, um, you know, I think it, he's the Victor Meldrew of Bond as far as I'm concerned. But it's a shame as well for the actor because you could see the love that he had for playing the role when he took it on. And it was just because he wasn't liked by the critics at the time, you could see that really took an effect on him. And it is a shame because I think if they'd have been consistent and would have stuck with, you know, what his identity would have been as Bond, he could have been a good Bond. I don't think he should have done more than potentially three films. I think his sort of style would have grated, I think, on the audience at the time. And, you know, Boston had to be seen as rescuing Bond, effectively. Whether, you know, people like that or not, or Dalton fans, it was partly down to how badly, especially License to Kill, I think they adjusted it to inflation. And it was one of the worst performing out of all the Bond films. So I do feel sorry for Dalton. And I think there's a very good actor in there. He's been, you know, some great, he's been great in other things. I just don't think his Bond was consistent enough. Stuart, you mentioned Roger Moore is your favourite Bond. What are your rankings for the Moore films? Um, I have to spy I love me as top again as much as I love um, Octopussy it's, which is stra- it's strange because it doesn't go into the top five but it's very near then obviously I have Octopussy um, Live and Let Die is a cracking film I have that as number three um, it's it's one of the most overlooked I think Octopussy is overlooked as well I think Live and Let Die is one of the most sort of slept on Bond villains I think it's got a great Bond girl it's got some great Bond villains it has an interesting plot actually but you know I think it was a very cool sort of you know only Bond film that really dabbled in the supernatural it would have been interesting to see what happened to Baron Semedi's character you know after he's um, sitting on the you know, front of the train at the end Future Kill then I like the film I think Christopher Walken Grace Jones fantastic performances and it's an enjoyable film it's a, it's a fun film For Your Eyes Only is a good film and I think it's a great performance by Moore I think for me it's not as fun as the other films that's why I like that Man with a Golden Gun is really propped up by Moore and Christopher Lee it's not a great film it could have been a lot lot better the book isn't good either to be honest so um i think they didn't have much to work with there but you could have done a lot better film with having you know some guy who charges a million pounds to kill someone and then you got moonraker moonraker is an interesting one because it has one of the most horrific scenes in any bond film where the assistants having the doberman chaser in the woods um, you know it's quite quite a horror film sort of vibe there and when you have girls are looking with that sadistic sort of smile when Roger Moore's um, potentially being drowned by the snake. So there's some very, very actually dark moments. And, you know, Hugo Drax is a great villain, but it's just a bad film, unfortunately. You know, the only great thing about the lasers is the fact that you got them in Goldeneye and you could try and shoot Jaws. That was about the highlight of those, to be honest, um, was they worked well in a computer game 20-odd years later. Yeah, Moonraker is a, is a dirty word on the podcast. For those who have listened to the Moonraker episode, you'll know exactly what my feelings are on that. I completely agree with your your rankings there. One more ranking question from me, and that is around the Bond theme songs. So what would you say are your top five Bond theme songs? So I said I love License to Kill, so I'll put that first. Nobody does it better as a great song as well. It's a particular song about Roger Ball's Bond. It's, it's a song that fits that Bond more than you can imagine Roger having a song, you know, wrote about him being the best. It's or his Bond being the best. It just fits his bond so well. All Time High, I love that song. It's a very weird one. I was in Hunt Stanton years ago, and some guy was playing a saxophone solo of it. It's, it's fantastic, you know. I got out the car, and some guy was playing All Time High, and the saxophone was... um Yeah, very, very, I, I love that. It's, I think, yeah, it's it's not one of the strongest ones. It's strange, actually, on reflection, there's not a Shirley Bassey one there. I could have at least put Diamonds and Sierra Leone on there, because, you know, it's always a nice mix with Kanye West there when they do a song. Um, yeah, I think, I, I just like the song. I think it's um, it's 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 quite a nice, happy sort of little song. The Living Daylights is a fantastic song by Aha. It's a really, really good and well-delivered song. And then we have another diva at the end with Skyfall. Um, it's weird for me, the Bond films, when you go to see them in the cinema, because obviously I've seen from Goldeneye onwards in the cinema, the films sometimes set the tone. I hated when I first heard it, you know my you know my name. So I was sitting there looking at my friend and said, this film's going to be crap. It's because, you know, it's I didn't like the song. Um, but Skyfall, it gave that whole epic sort of vibe to the film. You thought, oh, we're going to see something fantastic here. She had the whole... And it is. It does show sometimes with, if it's a good song. I can't imagine how those poor people felt watching Moonraker. You know, you got... It's even... You know, Shirley Bassey even hates that song, apparently. Um, so I think it's... You never underestimate how great the song impacts it. Because again, with Writing on the Wall was a bland, very, but then No Time to Die, as much as it was a mellow song, had a good delivery. So I think the songs do have a big impact on the film when you're going to watch them at the cinema, I believe. Fully agree with you on that. I think the 
the songs, the opening scenes, the opening credits, like you said, that that's really where it can kind of make or break the film, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it really does. Even the Brosnan ones, where you got um, Tomorrow Never Dies and the Strongest, it had a really good opening scene. So the song wasn't you know that bad that it derailed it. I think if you've got like an average opening scene, and then like with Moonrakers, um, you know you had like the circus lot, the circus little jingle just before the song started. It just really. Well, it's, I think you're right there, yeah, I think it's a good mix that sets the tone for the fans and then, you know, it's um, it does get you in a good mood for watching the film. Stuart, last question from us is, which Bond do you think fits your own personality? I very much fit in Roger Moore, as much as I love him, also fits my personality. I've got a very sort of tongue-in-cheek, I do find a humour in everything, sometimes I probably shouldn't find a humour in everything, but, you know, there you go. It, yeah, I, I just love I just love his approach. I would love to be personality-wise Pierce Brosnan, but I don't think I'm cool enough for that. Um, as great as Roger is, no one seems to see him as cool anymore, so I could probably fit into that quite well. I think, I said to someone once on a date years ago, charm is my only weapon, so it's, you know, again, I think it's... I could probably have the charm of Roger Moore, just not the looks, I think, unfortunately. So, but no, I love his personality. If it genuinely does fit my um, personality, you know, I love other films like Gladiator, and I, you know, I don't really fit into the Russell Crowe. I'm going to go on a revenge of killing spree. But I think with Bond, for whatever reason, I think he does very much fit my personality. Thank you, Stuart. That's uh, that's been fascinating to hear your insights, your thoughts on all things Bond. I think there's um, there's a lot of similarities to what some jay and i's thoughts on a lot of differences as well so it's good to hear a third point of view and get all your thoughts on all things bond in terms of rankings and feelings so really appreciate you coming on the show thank you so much for taking the time and to the listeners out there thank you for listening we're going to have more of these specials coming soon with more bond superfans so stay tuned for those and in the meantime we'll see you again soon right here on the rating room well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it. Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to The Rating Room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels. And be sure to check out their song The System, available now on Spotify. You can find and message us on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok and Instagram by searching The Rating Room. You'll find all our social media links on our website, theratingroom.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Or feel free to drop us an email at theratingroom at gmail.com. Goodbye, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week, right here on The Rating Room.